Greetings this morning. It's been a blessing to be here to sing those songs of Zion led by exuberance and also that first message was a blessing Tristan wherever you are that um that applies in so much almost everything of the Christian life in fact it applies to the message this morning also want to welcome the visitors here thank you Thank you for coming and being a part of us, this service and our worship this morning. I also found out that if I, if you can't actually see what I'm going to share this morning, you might not get it. <laughs> so uh, that is part of the delivery, is to get people to see in their mind, in their heart. But we also know it's the Spirit of God that does it. The Spirit of God takes what is preached in the Word of God, and uh, that is what I trust uh, will happen this morning, that the Spirit of God will add on to what I share, and you can also discern what I share, because I am human. Not everything I say may have the first and second things in the proper order. So uh, we invite the Spirit of God to come be a part, guide, and direct us this morning. Why don't we just bow for a word of prayer before we go on? Thank you, Lord, this morning for your grace to us. Thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you, Lord, for the many wonderful truths that we just have sung this morning. That you have made us channels, but it is your power. You have made us and put us in us streams, but it is your water. And we thank you this morning for that great salvation that we have both sang about and have experienced many of us here. And Lord, we pray, Lord, as we open up your word, that you would inspire your message, your word, to our hearts. We pray that you would give to us what is needed this morning. And Lord, that you would instruct us out of your word. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. This is the second message that, out of a series, out of Second Peter, that I would like to go into this morning. You can turn there. We won't read it till a little later, but I want to give a little bit of a background again. The Apostle Peter was writing to an audience that he cared about. He was fulfilling the charge that Jesus had given to him. Does anybody remember what for charge Jesus gave to Peter personally? Anybody remember? Feed my sheep. That's right. And Peter was doing that when he wrote this letter. 
Peter was going to die soon after he wrote this letter. Of that he was persuaded. My life is near its end. And according to the early historian, church historian, Yusuf, Yusuf, hmm, Eusebius, I believe his name is, Peter was martyred during Nero's persecution about 67 or 68 A.D. And the letter was written just shortly before that. So this letter is like a dying father giving his last words to his children. And when you are in that situation, well, maybe first things become first. (laughs) The most important things that are on your heart, the biggest burdens on your heart, become the things that you share, your last words. In the first letter that Peter wrote, he was concerned that they would remain faithful under persecution. In the second letter, he was concerned that they would remain faithful in the middle of false teachers. The later letters from this New Testament era show this greater awareness of dangers facing the young church. If you look in Second Timothy, the last letter written by Paul, you will see grim warnings about false teaching and the growing pollution of the church in that letter. And the other two later letters that we have is one by Peter and another one by Jude. We discover the same strong note of warning. And, you know, it seems incredible to us that a church, the early church in the middle of persecution, would face that kind of threat. Because we tend to think that persecution purifies the church. It has some of that effect but not altogether. In fact, the two seem to go hand in hand. There are two main themes in this letter. One is the problem or the concern that Peter has. And again, what is that concern? It's false teachers. And the main verse in this this book is in in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And there's where Peter gets into that burden. But there were false prophets also among the people. That's referring to the Old Testament. There were false prophets. Even that there shall be false teachers among you who privily or secretly or cleverly shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them and bring upon them swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Heresies were coming. They were already there, but they would be coming with more force and more persuasion in time. And they were coming on the wings of friendly and amiable men. They were coming with men who were persuasive and connecting. They were coming with teachers who were connecting with the felt needs of the people. 
whatever that was. Men who were giving rationale for licentious and loose living. That's how these ideas were coming. And Peter saw it. And knowing that he would not be here long, he unburdens his heart through the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And the second to last verse in this book actually um, gives that. So I'll read that. Verse 17 of chapter 3. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Now there's a lot of warning words in there. You have fall. You have led away. You have error. You have lose your stability. All in one verse. Peter had something to say to those early Christians. Now, what is the answer? Anyone, especially me, can point out all that is wrong with everything and everybody. We're good at that. It doesn't take much skill to be critical. It doesn't take much expertise to tear things down, or does it? I should ask Eldon and Neil right now. But actually, I want to change that analogy. Peter was not tearing things down. You know, when we are critical, Peter could be called critical. He was definitely doing something with these. He was definitely raising alarm. But he was not tearing things down. That analogy is not correct. What Peter is doing, well, let me say this. He is not doing what the fallen church did later. The fallen church later on tore things down. When there were people that they thought were heretics, they they actually drove them away or they killed them. They persecuted them. They tortured them. That's what the fallen church did. They destroyed. They tore things down. Peter was not doing that. What was Peter doing? Well, what Peter was doing takes some extreme skill. It it takes something very skillful to do what Peter is doing here. And it's a spiritual ability. It is called discernment. Remember how those false teachers privily, secretly insert something wrong into their teaching. Not obvious, not in your face, but secretly. I likened the ability of what Peter was doing to a bridge inspector. You know those those guys who have those that truck with a big arm that goes down underneath the bridge, they're inspecting. A bridge inspector who has been trained and skilled to examine bridges to determine their structural soundness. Now, thousands of people can drive over that bridge every day and have no idea. 
there's no problem. But underneath that bridge, there are changes occurring. The inspector looks closer, much closer, and from a different angle than what the public looks at. And he compares the structure of that bridge underneath and everywhere, foundational. He compares it with the structure of what would be a sound bridge, which, of course, in this case would be this, the Bible. If everything is good, fine. If he finds some deficiency, he may give a warning which in this case would be a weight limit. You have a weight limit on the bridge because there is some, it still has some soundness to it, but it is deficient, so it will be limited. It can be used with caution and with stipulations. Or if you find a serious fault, may be found, which is necessary to simply close the bridge down, like they did over the turnpike, over the Delaware River. They closed the turnpike bridge. All of a sudden, one day, the bridge is closed. They found some serious flaw in it, and they closed an interstate highway going over a major river from state to state, and they closed it because it had deficiencies. It was a tremendous inconvenience, but bridges do collapse with deadly consequences. Peter is a bridge inspector. Or you could say he's a building inspector, too, and we can look at the analogy in the Sermon on the Mount where you had these two houses, and on the surface the houses probably looked similar, but underneath they were structurally very different. So Peter is not being critical. Not just critical, let me say it that way. As a spirit-filled, Jesus-taught disciple, he is discerning damnable heresies. Bridges that are structurally unsound and warning his people about them. Don't go over that bridge. So what is God's answer to structurally unsoundness? And the answer to the danger is in the last verse of the letter, which is Second Peter 3.18. 17, no, 18, yes. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Here is the true answer for error. It's to grow in grace and to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Now that needs to get broaden out, but that is the true answer to the uh, problem. In the last message, we had looked at the first four verses in First Peter, and we looked at the abundant provision that God has given to all his people. This morning, we will begin to look at our part. First things first, Tristan, and next things next, right? God does his part first. God multiplies grace, and then we add. Is it easier to add than multiply? 
Serena, what is three plus three? Six. What is three times three? <laughs> It's harder to multiply than add. God multiplies to us. Then He calls us to add. He gives us the easier part, but He does ask us to add. In this message, we will look at our part. Tristan, I didn't see you. Are you in a congregation somewhere? I can't. There you are. Okay. I have a number of paradoxes here. I don't know if this applies to it or not, but、uh, it's amazing how that first message fit in with this one. This letter deals with a paradox. Many of them. He said, "How is it that God gives us all we need to please Him, and yet requires us to work hard to please Him?" On the one side, he is pleased when we believe. On the other side, he is not pleased if we don't work also. Being in Christ is salvation, but being like Christ is salvation also. The Spirit produces in a person produces fruit; it grows on you. But every one of those fruits is also commanded of us as something we shall practice. Is salvation passive or is it active? Is it a gift that we receive or is it a life that we live? And Peter says yes. So let's read First Peter. I'm sorry, I said, did I say First Peter? Second Peter. It's Second Peter, chapter one, and we'll read the first fifteen verses to get the context. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us, through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and, our, and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, for though ye know them and be established in the present truth, yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. 
knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. And we're going to look at one verse this morning. It's verse 5. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. And besides what? Peter says, besides this, besides what? Well, this designates a shift or a change from what has been before. What was before? Well, it was God's provisions for us. That was what was before. It's the faith. It's the grace. It's the peace. It's the life. It's the great promises. It's the escape from the corruption of the world. It is the abundance of God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross upon a sinner who repents and believes the gospel. That's what we had before. God's provision for the sinner who has repented. God is good. God is generous. I just read Isaiah 9.2. I'll just read it. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. John 1, 2 and 25. And this is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. That's a promise of God. It's the provision of God. You know, and we had just talk a little bit about the God's promises because that's what we had before, the exceeding great and precious promises. God's promises are statements of how he will relate to his children. They show God's intentions for us. Now, God has some promises to the wicked also. (laughs) God has many promises. Not all of them are good Unless you are a child of God, then God's promises in him are all yea and amen. That's what they are in Christ. The promises of God show his disposition toward us. If he did not care for us, he would not bother to help us. And now, besides that. Well, we have 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Having therefore these promises, these promises of God, let us cleanse, oh, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves. Now, we might ask the question, whoa, that doesn't even sound Christian to our modern ears. Listen to me. Cleanse ourselves. That doesn't even sound Christian. Nor does what we read here add to your faith. That doesn't even sound Christian. Shall I tell you what sounds Christian to our modern ears? Your job is to catch the fish, and it's God's job to clean them. 
That sounds right to our modern ears. Or let go and let God. Now, there's elements of truth in both of those statements, by the way. And if you had taken those statements in the past, that's okay. (laughs) But taking that, that sounds more to our modern ears, but cleanse ourselves. Though a farmer cannot make the corn grow, he will not have a bin of corn in the fall unless he has a lot of input over a long period of time. And neither can anyone expect a grand ending that we wrote uh, read about this morning without following his plan. So, besides this, add to your faith virtue. Is that what it says? Did I say something wrong? I'll read it again. Besides this, add to your faith virtue. Is that correct? Anyone? What did I miss? Giving all diligence. diligence. Okay. I want to emphasize that because it's there and it's there for a reason. Give all diligence. God has given. Now you give. Give what? Well, give all for starters. That means not half, not three-fourths. It means give all Diligence. And diligence, the Greek word, means to hasten, to exert yourself, and to be zealous. And the word all emphasizes that. Now, if I would say, and we don't use this word anymore, but I would say hasten. (laughs) I would mean you should hurry. Okay? But if I would say make all haste, I would have an ambulance in mind. I mean, lights and zion, forget the traffic lights, forget the speed limit. It is flat out all haste. Get here as fast as you, ha- as you can. And so there is an urgency in Peter's exhortation. That's what I want to bring out. Exert yourself. We have had... For way too many months, (laughs) maybe several years, a a small stack of tires alongside our driveway wall in the garage there, sitting out in the rain and the snow, and they had come off of a vehicle that probably was a spare tire and underneath the snow and rain. And they've been sitting there, and I decided it's time that we actually get rid of these old tires. Well, the tires were still on the rims. This is 15-inch van rims, so they're pretty substantial. So I decided I will take the tires off the rims and junk them separately. So I got my two little screwdrivers, like you take a bicycle tire off, and I took them off. In five minutes, I was done. (laughs) Who believes that story? Well, let me tell you the story. I got the tools that I had. I had a couple of bars, a wrecking bar, a hammer, and I went to work. Well, I went and got some soapy water and tried to get it in there. And then I went to the neighbors and got some more tools. 
Then I examined and I changed my strategy. I tried this bar that, that with the tire down, but it only got it down so far, that little hook bar. So I used a hammer and another bar, and I, I got scars to show it that um, I was determined. I was determined. I had a goal in mind. It had to get off. You had to get those beads down to the middle of the tire so that you can slide it over and get it off. You had to do that. And so I tried this. I tried that. I was sweating. And I finally got the one bead off. Well, then you had to get the other side off. Same thing. Figure it out. And then the other tire, two tires. And that one behaved differently for some reason. So you had to figure something else out. Finally, they were off. Success. In a nutshell, Peter is saying, if you do not add that kind of diligence, that kind of determination, that kind of exertion to the things that are mentioned here, you will become a stunted and a nearsighted and a stumbling, bumbling Christian. And even the adjective Christian can become in question. But if you add this kind of exertion alongside with the provision of God, you will have discernment and wisdom and growth and you will have a grand entrance in the kingdom of God. When you get home to glory, you will have a grand entrance. That's what God's word says. So I, I haven't been there. I haven't done that. But that's what God's word says. So brother and sister, how is it for you? Do you have a few little screwdrivers and you're picking away at your Christian life? At that dry, rutted tire and that rusty rim. Could be called your flesh. Could be called your friends. Could be called whatever if I get up tomorrow morning in time for my devotions that's fine if not I'll try another day if I fail it might be setting sin I'll ask God to forgive me I know I'm allowing my flesh to live in this one area instead of crucifying it for real but I think it'll be okay I know that doctrinally this is off a little, but I like it, and I don't think it will affect me that much. Peter is talking to us. He is actually warning us. This is God's word. If we hear the word and do it, we are blessed. If we hear the word and don't do it, we are deceived. That's what God says. Are you zealous with your walk with God? Not a hooping and hollering kind of zealousness, but determined to have all that God has for you. There is no other way. Is your face set like a flint? I will do God's will, even if it kills me. And for some people... It has and does. 
And not the world or the devil or your flesh or your troubles are going to deter you from adding to your faith. Give all diligence. Add to your faith virtue. We need some zeal. But zeal must be directed before we get unbalanced here. Just because someone has zeal doesn't mean that's all good. Not always. In, uh, in Romans, Paul was, was uh, moaning over the Jewish people. And he's saying, brethren, my heart desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And Paul, turning out his own testimony, he said, concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. So Paul was exceptionally zealous, but it was misdirected and misguided. But zealous people tend to be admired, and they tend to gain a following. John the Baptist was a zealous man, and people came to just hear him preach, even wicked people like Herod. Donald Trump is a zealous man. That's why he has a following. There are publicly zealous people, and there are some people who are zealous that are not necessarily public. You don't hear about them. But it is important that our zeal is correctly directed, not just any zeal. And actually, we'll get into that later when we add to your add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And we'll get into more of that directed zeal later, I would imagine. Okay, add to your faith. And now we have a list of things that are with that we are to absolutely, with urgency and zeal, add to our faith in Christ. Now here's another question I have to you for you as we get on here. The list starts with one character quality and then another and then another. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience on down the line. How shall we view this? Is this like a level set that you you put the one down, then you put the other one on top, and you put the other one on top, and you built this thing, and you don't have any brotherly kindness until you finally get up there? Or it doesn't matter at all which order you have them in at all, that it really doesn't matter which one you get first. But the wording does imply a sequence because it add to this and then add to this. So it does imply a sequence. I want to study that a little bit. I believe it is sequential, but not completely so. It doesn't mean you don't have anything until you have all of them. The last on the list is charity or love. Now, near the beginning of the list is temperance or self-control. Next to it is patience or endurance. Now, how are you going to love someone who's not easy to love without control of yourself and your emotions? And how will you continue to love that person without patience or endurance? So you see that you actually do need these things to actually get up to there. But do you have to have all those qualities before you have the last? 
Well, Jim Berg explains it this way. He said it's like an embryo developing in its mother's womb. All the parts of the baby are developing simultaneously. The fingers are growing and developing. The arms, the leg, the torso, everything is growing. But while all the parts are developing at a certain rate, there's also a noticeable developmental sequence. It, the first thing you notice if you have a picture of an embryo is its large head in comparison to its body. The brain must be developed first so that it can help control the growth and development of the rest of the baby. If the brain is misformed, other parts of that baby will be misformed or deformed too. And then after the baby, after the brain, the heart is an important organ, begins beating, begins to pump blood, pump blood to the brain, and then the other parts. So the parts of the baby are developing simultaneously and yet sequentially. And Christian character is a lot like that. All of these traits are commanded and necessary for growth and maturity, and yet there is a sequence of importance and order. And if the one toward the front is missing, it will majorly affect the others later on on the list. So if that's true, what is the head of this whole thing? Well, it is the first one, which is virtue, which we'll study the rest of this morning now. Virtue. Add to your faith virtue. For this embryo, which has been conceived by faith, to develop and mature into a healthy, in a healthy way and have a grand healthy entrance into the real physical world, it must start with virtue. Many things can go wrong with the baby, but if the foundational things are wrong, the problems are serious indeed. So we must start our development as a Christian with virtue. Now, what is virtue? The way we use the word today, everything that's on that whole long list is a list of virtues. <laughs> that's the way we use the word today. So we add virtue. Well, what does that mean? Well, another way to translate the word is to say excellence, and that is how other translations do actually use that word. Excellence. Add to your faith excellence. But, again, what does that mean? And, like, that rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, and, and young, and, uh, I'm getting my words, the young ruler came to Jesus and said, good master. And Jesus said, there's none good but God. That's right. There's none good but God. Would we also say there's none excellent but God? So how are we to take this? 
In fact, uh, if we go back to verse verse uh, 3, we read this. It's the same word. Virtue is there. The same word. And uh, according as his, dip- his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue or glory and excellence. We've been called to God's glory and God's excellence. So excellence is something of God, and now we're called to add to our faith excellence. How shall we understand this? If this is the most essential quality of our life, if we are called to add with all the tire-changing determination that we have this excellent, what is it? Well, I'd like to... Meditate a little bit on that word. God is excellent. Of that we are certain. But how are we to be excellent? Well, when I was a boy, I remember as a boy getting a new pocket knife was a pretty major event. I don't know if it still is boys or not. But you got this marbled brown or black exterior, and you had these two little knives that open up and then fold it back in. You could put it in your pocket. It was a beautiful thing. It was an excellent knife. Or was it? Well, whenever I got a new knife back then, I discovered they weren't very sharp. They were, in fact, quite dull. Brand new. They were dull. So here was this beautiful knife. It was polished. It folded up nicely. It was so nice to show to my friends what I got. But was it excellent? Well, if the purpose of a knife is to cut, it was not excellent. It did not fulfill the purpose. Now, if the purpose of the knife was for show... And the knives were dull on purpose to keep little boys from slicing off their fingers. Then it was an excellent knife. If that was the purpose of this knife, then that was an excellent knife. If it was whatever its purpose is. But so to know if something is excellent or not, you need to know what its purpose is. If you know its purpose and it does its purpose, that's excellent. So now we're on to something. For us to add excellence, we need to know what our purpose in God is. What are we created to be and to do? If you're going to do that well, you are adding excellence to your faith. If you are doing that well, rather. If you are not doing this foundational thing well, you are being stunted and malformed. Now, in 1 Peter, and you can turn over there just a few pages back, in 1 Peter 2.9, we have the same word, virtue, in there, but it's a different, it's, it's uh, in praises this time. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people 
that ye should show forth the praises or the excellencies of him who had called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what is your position here? Well, you are chosen. You are royal. You are of kingly lineage. You are holy. You're set apart. You are peculiar. That's who you are. Now here's your purpose. Show forth the excellencies of him who had called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Like the catechism says, man is created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So what it means to add to our faith excellence is that we must come to the realization that we are on earth for one reason and one reason only, and we must wholeheartedly commit ourselves to that purpose. A summary thought, a summary to this thought is the familiar chapter 12, Romans, verses 1 and 2. What is our purpose? Where, what, what are we to what are we here for, or what are we to do? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good, what that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There will be no, will be in you or in I, no significant maturity in our Christian experience until we come to the that because of Christ's work on the cross, we now belong entirely to Christ and to be used entirely for his purposes. We have been bought with a price. And what does that say? We've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Because we've been bought. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. And so, and ways of handling life and, and instead have a daily yoking with Christ as a disciple. To become like him and to act like him and to show others his excellency out of the excellency he has worked out of our heart when we are fully committed to him. If this purpose of life, if this surrender is a part of your experience, then you are adding to your original faith virtue. You're entering into what you were created to be. And I like to think of the contrast of a Christian who does not add, and, and here we have a little bit of dilemma, because how can you be a Christian and not fully dedicated? Well, just, just take that, because we are at different scales, okay? So we'll use that. A Christian who is not, does not add this entire dedication to Christ, Then that head of the embryo is not formed properly, and it will affect every other virtue in the book. This is a foundational virtue. If you don't have this, then you will come become, as, as Peter says, you will become nearsighted. 
you will actually become, you will not live in eternity. You will live and make your decisions based on earthly evaluations. Your relationships are going to be based on temporal values. Your occupations or your purchases or your giving or your leisure or anything in your life without this foundational, I am here for God. He owns me. I'm here to show forth his glory. If that is not there, it will affect every area of our life. Many believers are stuck right here. They have not determined to wholeheartedly pursue God's purpose for their lives. Consequently, they are lukewarm and apathetic in their walk with God. It's difficult to get them very interested in the things of God. Or they may be passionate but worldly. They may be doing and talking Christian things, but it looks like they are being influenced more by the world and its standards and the fads than holiness and righteousness from the word of God. Or they may be frustrated and defeated and blame their circumstances and their family background blame and blame, I'm sorry, with their out of their defeat, they blame their circumstances or their family background or their church for the lack of progress that they have made towards spiritual maturity in Christ. But many times it's a result of simply not adding. Things aren't adding up. The wholehearted commitment and surrender has not occurred or it is being sidetracked. And you see, when, when we say about this commitment, we're not talking to the young people. It's for all of us. All of us can get sidetracked. Some Christians even question whether a person is a Christian without this wholehearted commitment. Well, all I can say is that definitely needs to be in place for the outcome to be of any real success. We can know that for sure. John D. Martin years ago described it this way. He said, full surrender is like, or uh, yeah, full surrender to Christ is like this. He said, when you get a contract, before you sign the paper, before you sign the contract, you want to read it. Even the small print, you want to know what you are signing to before you sign it. Because once you have signed it, you are obligated, required to keep the terms of that commitment. John D. described it this way. He said, to commit yourself to Christ is like signing your name on a blank sheet of paper. And Christ will fill it in what he wants you to do. But because you trust him. Because you have committed your life to him, because he has saved you, all he's done for you, and your trust for him, you're saying, yes, I can sign my name, and you can rule my life. I don't know what it is, but I trust you. You have just added virtue to your faith. If you had done that 
and you live that out. I am his. My life revolves around him. He is, he really is king of kings. And then he is my king. He is, I am his subject. I love him. I have the one primary purpose in life to promote him. You know, what I'm describing is actually the normal Christian life. (laughs) When it's measured by the Bible standards. But it seems radical when it's measured by what we call normal around us. You know, it doesn't matter how successful or how popular or how gifted we are. Or how many people admire us or appreciate us. If we are not displaying this excellence in our life, we cannot consider ourselves excellent. On the other hand, it matters not how naturally limited we are or poor or unappreciated we are. If we are displaying this excellence of Christ in our life, we possess true excellence. So the last question I want to leave with all of us, who has your heart? Christ, not us, not the world, and no one else may have our heart. If, we, if he is going to transform us into his image, then we, he needs to have our heart. If he does not have your heart, then you can acknowledge it. You can repent. You can change your mind and your direction of life. And God will forgive you, and he will take you from where you are. He will take you at your word. So here we have it. And besides this, besides all those promises and provisions, giving all diligence, make it priority in your life, add to your faith virtue. So may God bless you. And may God give us this kind of life as a congregation. May God bless you.